Hosea 11, 1-11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realise it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboam? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle in in their homes, declares the Lord. Well, growing up, uh, I had a part-time job in high school of doing a paper run uh, to make a little bit of extra money on the side. I used to wake up at uh, 6 a.m. three mornings a week to do my run, and I'd make enough money to buy one uh, CD, one album a month. And back then, that's how we judged how much money you were making, was how many CDs you could buy in a month. So I was living big. Right, one one CD a month. I had a Walkman. You know, had Anti Shock, which was good for when you're doing a paper run. Very handy. I'd, I'd work hard, but I had a mate that did a paper run as well, and his run was bigger than mine, which means he earned a bit more money. The only thing is that every morning he would only do half of his run, because his dad would actually go out and do the other half. Now this was fine. There was no problem with that. The thing was, he would come to school every day bragging about how much bigger his paper run was. The fact that he, uh, he could buy a CD and a half every month. Never once did he uh, acknowledge his dad's help. He acted as if he had worked for it all on his own. He'd forgotten the work that his father has did, had did, had done, and took all the credit for himself. This morning, we're going to see that the, the, the Israelites are not doing, uh, are doing something that is not too dissimilar uh, to what my friend was doing. That they are forgetful children. That they've forgotten all the things that their father has done for them and taken credit for themselves. Well, up to the point in this book, uh, there's been kind of a dominant image of marriage. Uh, you'll remember from the last two uh, sermons, we saw the, the, the marriage of Hosea and Goma represented God's marriage with Israel. Uh, we saw that uh, just like Goma, 
Israel had been unfaithful to God. That they'd wanted to bring the, the Canaanite god Baal into the marriage bed. That they wanted a polygamous relationship. And this was because, we saw last week, that this was because they had rejected the knowledge of God and they had chased after pleasure. But this morning, Hosea introduces a different image to describe God and Israel. God here in chapter 11 is described as Israel's loving father and Israel is God's dearly loved son. And what we'll see is a different aspect to Hosea's unfaithfulness. You see, up till now, we've been predominantly seen the spiritual adultery uh, as they've run after Baal. But this morning, we will see their physical adultery. So jump to chapter 11. Let's get into it. Verse 1. God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Here Israel... Uh, Here, Hosea introduces this new image of God, the loving Father. Now, when you think of God's Son, hopefully, you think of Jesus, right? Jesus being God's only begotten Son, which is true. But while Jesus is God's only begotten Son, He's not the only one who has Son status. You see, in Exodus, uh, when Moses was before uh, Pharaoh telling him to let the Israelites go. Have a look at what God told Moses to say about Israel. Exodus 4, God says, Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, so you may worship me, so he may worship me. And so it's the same here in Hosea 11. We see that Israel is God's son. And what's so significant about uh, this relationship is the fact that Israel had no right to the status. You see, they weren't born into sonship, that they didn't earn their status of son. Rather, God chose to give it to them for no other reason than just because he loved them. And so he called them out of slavery in Egypt to be his people, to be his children. But I wonder if you notice there, at the the little bit of detail at the end of that verse, and out of Egypt I called my son. You see, that reference there, you might remember from the start of the year, in Matthew chapter 2, it's used of Jesus. Jesus, God's only begotten son, flees with his family out of Egypt because of Herod. Have a look at Matthew chapter 2. This is speaking of Joseph. So Joseph got up, took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea 11 is actually speaking about Jesus. You see, it's in the fulfillment of this statement that Jesus came out of Egypt that we get a hint to how God will keep his promise that he's been making through Hosea to Israel. God will rescue Israel through Jesus. And we're going to look at this in detail next week. 
So make sure you come next week, grand finale, where it all comes together. We're going to be looking at that particularly next week. But in verse 2, Hosea tells us what we have known all along. We've heard it for the last two weeks. Have a look. uh, Verse 2. But the more they were called, the more they were sent away from me. The more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. The, the one, ones that God had chosen to be his children rejected him for dead gods made of wood. And then Hosea kind of zooms in to show us the detail of what God is like as a father. In verse 3, God says, It was I who taught Ephraim, who's Israel, to walk taking them by the arms. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. This is such a beautiful image of the fatherhood of God. Hosea uses this beautiful poetry to paint a picture for us where we see God raising Israel, teaching them how to walk, looking after them when they were sick, taking their hand and leading them safely to their destination. And then he picks them up and he smothers them in this big daddy hug, pressing them to his cheek. And then he bends over and he shares his food with them, making sure that they're provided for. You see, chapter 11 of Hosea is really such a unique chapter in the Bible. There's almost nothing really like it. Because it's through this word picture that we see the deep, deep love that God has for his children. But as we know, that love is one-sided. And so God hands them over. In verse 5, chapter 11, Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them? Because they have refused to repent. You see, Egypt here is is symbolic. God isn't saying, uh, you're going back to Egypt. No, he's brought them out of Egypt once before. They're not going back there. But Egypt here, and throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, is symbolic for exile and for slavery. You see, when God used Moses and brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt... That was the most significant moment in the Old Testament where God rescued his people and he made promises to be their God and they would be his people. It was the great moment of grace and rescue. And so as you read the Old Testament, when you see uh, Egypt, most of the time it'll be referring to what life was like before God rescued them. And so what God is saying here is, Israel, because you have refused to repent, Because you have forgotten your father, you will go back to slavery, to what life was like before I rescued you. Only this time, uh, it will be the Assyrians that will enslave you, not the Egyptians. And you know, the astonishing thing about this statement is that God is actually giving Israel what they've been wanting. He's letting them run off with their lovers. Because you see, this section of of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 4, through to 11, verse 11, we see the physical state that Israel are in. Their leaders are taking advantage of the people. 
the priests are robbing people, they've, they've broken the covenant. But the thing that we see dotted throughout all of these chapters is that Israel is running to other nations. They're running to other nations, calling for them to provide security. Because you see, Israel were in the middle of a huge international tension. There's a map here. It's not 100% accurate, but it, it does the trick. It'll give you an idea of what's going on. You see, life for Israel at the moment was really uncertain. They've got Assyria there at the top, right? They're the world power uh, at this time. And they're extending their borders. And Israel know that Assyria have their eye on Israel's land. And then you've got Damascus kind of there in the middle in the purple between Israel uh, and Assyria. And Israel and Damascus have had kind of a, a rocky relationship. Uh, it's been up and down. And then below Israel, you've got Judah, right? The southern kingdom. And Judah uh, know, they know that Israel is their buffer between uh, them and Assyria. And then below Judah, you've got Egypt. Now, Egypt used to be the powerhouse, right? The, the dominant nation, but not anymore. They've got still got some power, but Assyria is the main dog. And Egypt, Egypt are kind of just sitting there waiting to see what happens uh, to the north. Uh, and if there's an opportunity to kind of take advantage, they will. And so Israel are feeling the pressure. They're feeling kind of cornered in. And in their fear and in their stress of war, and, and they know it will result in destruction, they start running from nation to nation. They're trying to make alliances to ensure their security. And so they run down to Egypt, and, and they, they try up with Damascus, and no success. And then finally, they, they figure if you can't beat them, we'll join them. And so they go to Assyria, the monster, the big dog to Assyria, to make an alliance. But Hosea doesn't see this as a strategic move. Instead, he actually describes Israel as pigeons. You see, in chapter 11, chapter 7, verse 11, Hosea says, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria, you see, Israel, they don't care who they have to run to. Whoever will throw them out some food, that's who we're siding with. And as a result, in chapter 8, verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants, for they have gone to Assyria like a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. You see, Israel's issue is they don't trust God. They've forgotten who their father is. They don't believe that God can or will provide for their needs. But the thing is, God has been providing them for them all along. For generation after generation. But they're just trying to cover all their bases. They're trying to provide themselves with some sort of security and control. But it won't work. I think, you know, often, I don't know how you've been finding it through these series, but often we can read this and we can kind of shake our head at Israel. Right? We can go, oh, how could you forget God after all he's done in all of the Old Testament up to this point? 
But isn't it so easy for us to be like this? I know it is for me because I was doing this only three weeks ago. You see, three weeks ago, uh, the week that I was preaching the first Hosea uh, sermon in the series, our car, it failed its rego, its rego check. Uh, it was going to cost uh, almost $2,000 to get it back on the road, and it's an old car. It's worth half of that, and so it was going to the wreckers. The thing is, we're only in the country for five more months, and then we move back home to New Zealand. And so at the time, this felt like a massive problem. It was a problem that I didn't have time for. I was trying to do college, I was trying to preach, uh, get my sermon ready for Sunday. But it was also a problem that we couldn't afford. And you know what the first thing that I did was when I, when I got the call from my mechanic? I tried to come up with a solution. I got that call, bang, I was off. Right, I was on Gumtree, I was on Facebook Marketplace, trying to work out if we could afford a car, and then would we be able to sell it to be able to get enough afterwards? I was going through all these options, sending texts, uh, answering car ads. I was in the zone, right? I was problem solving. And then a day later, I was sitting in a, in a, a small group at college, and we were going around asking for prayer points for each other, and we came to me, and I asked... Uh, if we could pray for my preparation for my sermon on Sunday and that I'd have good time management so I could kind of keep college going with uh, my sermon. And then we went to the next person and they started sharing their prayer points. And this girl kind of sitting across from me, she said, hold on a sec, don't you want prayer for your car situation? Because she'd heard about it. And I was like, oh man, (laughs) I forgot to bring this before God. I was so caught up in trying to solve this for myself that I'd done the same thing as Israel, right? I'd taken my security and my provision into my own hands, which is crazy because when I look at everything that happened to bring Abby and I here to Australia and some of the ways that God provided in just crazy ways, how could I forget to bring this before God? thinking that I had uh, all the control in this situation. My father, the one who had been with us throughout this whole time. Now, little did I know that there was actually a couple at college who uh, hadn't been using their second car. And get this, they had been praying for six months for a ministry opportunity that they could give this car to for ministry purposes. And so as a result, we're lending their car for six months before we go. And so regardless of all my planning, regardless of my attempts of problem solving and lack of trust, God provided. He had a plan. But you know, my guess is that my response to hearing about my car is probably not too different to how many of us would react today. You see, I think it's particularly hard for us here in Australia to trust God for our security and for our provision. I think we're seriously in danger of doing the same thing that Israel are doing. You see, we're in a culture that ensures security and it ensures backup plans, right? We we buy insurance, we have superannuation accounts, which are good things, really good. But they can also be huge dangers, Because I think 
often we forget where these things come from. You see, there's two ways that we can kind of think about security and kind of backup plans today. The first kind of option is a person who views their insurance and their super account as their underlying security, right? They max out on all their policies for everything. They make sure that everything is in order. And they go to bed feeling content and secure because they have set up precaution options. They're ready for the unexpected. And then when something goes wrong, God doesn't even enter their head. They don't acknowledge him. They certainly don't talk to him. But the second option is a person who views their insurance and their super account as a fantastic gift from God. And so they thank God for the structures that help them deal with unexpected situations. And so they also ensure that all their policies are up to date and everything is in their right place. But they go to bed knowing that God is the one who's provided for them, that it is God who provides their ultimate security. Now, I'm not putting forward two extremes and saying, you're either one or you're in the other. I think often we kind of slip between the two. I just think it's really important to be aware of this. I also want to flag... Please do not hear me saying trusting God means you don't buy insurance and you don't have a superannuation account. I'm not saying that at all. These are good things. The issue is when we rely on the gift rather than the giver. You see, Israel were doing the same thing. In chapter 10, verse 13, Hosea says, But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because... You have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. You see, God gave Israel armies, right? He gave them walls. He gave them defenses. These are practical things that are good, that God gave Israel. But their problem was that they depended on these defenses more than the one who provided them. And so I think we can be in danger of doing the same thing. And I think a helpful diagnostic kind of question to work out where your heart is at and where you're at with all of this is that the next time something goes wrong, number one, do you ask God to provide? Do you bring it before him? And secondly, if you're making kind of an insurance claim or something like that, do you thank God for providing you with insurance? They're little things, but I think it can be helpful to work out where we ultimately find our security and where we look to for our provision. We must not let our gifts of security and provision cause us to forget the one who gave them, our Father. But how does this kind of translate into Israel? Like, isn't Assyria kind of like uh, the insurance policy? Doesn't it, isn't it common sense to... Uh, make an alliance with Assyria for, right, for Israel's security? It wasn't. You see, Assyria, when they made alliances with a nation, they came with two requirements. If you were going to ally with Assyria, firstly, you had to give absolute loyalty to the Assyrian empire, uh, emperor. And secondly, you had to worship the Assyrian gods. And so you see, alliance with Assyria 
meant rejection of God as Israel's king and their provider. And so Hosea summarizes it in chapter 8. Israel have forgotten their maker and they built palaces. Israel have forgotten the one who made them. The one who, who rescued them, who called them his children. The one who provided for them. The one who gave them a land, who, who protected them. But they continue to want to be like the nations around them. Do you remember in uh, 1 Samuel, we looked at it kind of last time as we went through the story of the Bible. Israel rejected God as their king when they asked for Saul as a king. And then they rejected David's line of kingship when they split with Judah after Solomon. And now in kind of their immediate context, they have assassinated king after king after king of their own. And now they want Assyria as their king. You see, this is more than just kind of a slap in the face for God. This is the rejection of his son. The rejection of his son. And so he gives them up. He gives them over to what they want. Jump back to chapter 11, verse 5 to 7. God says, will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they have refused to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me, God most high, I will by no means exalt them. God lets them go. Because he knows that, he knows what Assyria's intentions are. You see, he knows that Assyria will take the Israelites out of the land and into slavery. And then they will send foreigners into their land to live in Israel. So that Israel will lose their homes, their land, their identity, And now, they've lost their father. Well, so they think. You see, what makes this chapter so special in the Bible is because we get a glimpse into God's affections and emotions. We we see God kind of wrestle with himself as uh, he holds up his justice, but is determined to commit to his deep love for his children. And so have a look at Uh, these amazing next verses in chapter 11. No, in chapter 11, uh, verse 8. And and try and imagine how God is feeling here. Chapter 11, verse 8. God says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. Do you feel that? God cannot give up his son. He cannot abandon them. He will not completely destroy them like Adma and Zeboim in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because God is not a man. You see, at this point, any human father would have given up. Only God has such faithfulness and unconditional love. 
No, he will continue to be their God and walk with them through this punishment and bring them out the other side. And then the next verses in verse 10 to 11, God says they will follow the Lord. They will, uh, he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Like a lioness's roar draws her cubs to herself, so God will call his children. They will hear his voice, and they will come out of slavery. They will remember who their father is, and they'll return to him. What amazing love God has for his children. And what's even more amazing is that through God's only begotten son, Jesus, right, the one who also came out of Egypt, through putting our trust in him, we can also be called children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. What wonderful news. That God could not give up on his children. That that he could not abandon them, but that he walks with them until they return. Friends, this is our story. This is our Father. What great news.